This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Today we have Christiane Perme with us. She is a post-ICU rehab specialist and expert that gives seminars around the world. And she's kind enough to join us today. Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me and I'm very excited about this opportunity. Good, well, can you tell us a little bit about what your career timeline has been like? Um, okay, for I am a physical therapist and uh, for the past 30 years, I primarily worked as a physical therapist in intensive care unit. So I have been mobilizing patients and uh, walking them on mechanical ventilation and uh, most recently on ECMO for like, this is my daily uh, practice as a physical therapist. So you're one of the rock star superheroes of the ICU that we're so grateful for. And I just want to pick your brain about some things that are way beyond my expertise. Can you explain to us, especially in the ICU, the difference between bed rest and immobility and how that impacts patients' long-term outcomes? Yes. It's very important for all of the clinicians who practice in intensive care to clearly understand the difference between bed rest and immobility. When you talk about bed rest, that means that patients are placed in supine position and they are not allowed against gravity at all. Unlike some people think that patients would recover when they are on bed rest, they recover faster. It's the opposite you know, bed rest is very, very dangerous. And uh, we know that because there are more than 60 years of uh, scientific evidence in the literature, uh, primarily studies that are done by NASA of the very bad side effects of bed rest. That's where they get uh, healthy, young adults, and they place those individuals for prolonged bed rest for, you know, weeks, and then they are able to do all kinds of tests to see what happens to them. So we know, based on those studies, that bed rest, even for a health individual, is very dangerous. So again, bed rest is just not allowing a person to be against gravity. Now, when we talk about immobility, this is a little different. I want you to think about immobility is like when you have a limb on the cast. So if you have a broken arm and, uh, for example, they put a cast on the arm, so once you immobilize that limb, you take away the person's ability to completely move those muscles and to really connect with those muscles. So if you have a little bit of idea, like uh, when you take the cast off, I mean, you're going to see massive atrophy, decrease of motion at the joint level. In addition to that, you're going to see a significant decrease in the coordination. Just like I said earlier, these individuals are not able to think about those muscles, and therefore, they kind of lose the ability to coordinate. So basically, you could have a patient in ICU on bed rest, but he would be, for example, awake, 
He could be churning in the bed. He could be lifting the arm, lifting the leg. He could be turning the TV channels and things like that. So the patient is constantly thinking about uh, their muscles and utilizing those muscles. The only problem is that they are not against the gravity. As opposed to a patient who is, and when we talk about immobility, we are talking about the patient who is sedated. Once patients are sedated, or they are also placed on neuromuscular blockers, we take completely away the ability of the patient to really think about those muscles and to move those muscles. Does that make sense to you, Kelly? Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. When we look at these big studies with the A to F bundle, we see so much improvement by just lightening sedation. And yet when I, this last study that was done in 2019, only 12% of all of those patients out of 15,000 patients were actually um, standing or um, taking steps. And yet there were such big improvements and outcomes just by lessening sedation. So you're saying that most of those patients in the ADF bundle then were on bed rest, but they weren't so much immobilized because they could actually move parts of their body. And I, in my practice and in my ICU, most, if not all of my patients are walking right after intubation and all throughout, with the only exception for what is if they are prone or have an open abdomen. So I kept on seeing these, these terms, bed rest and immobility, be used so interchangeably, but you just explained it perfectly and that makes more sense to me because I see that even bed rest is better than immobility. So why is it so hard for us? I mean, you're talking about changing the culture of sedation to allow for bed rest, to allow people to actually move and change channels and reposition themselves. But then how do we go from even that to mobilizing patients? What are some of our obstacles? What do you find is so difficult in making that happen? Well, to be honest with you, I think there are several reasons. Mobilizing someone who is intubated, has multiple lines and attached to life support equipment, it's labor intensive. It's time-consuming. You have to be very careful because uh, you do not want to dislodge uh, any lines and cause patients, you know, more trouble. So it is not a simple, you know, process. It has to put a lot of thought into the process and make sure that everything is done correctly. In addition to that, you always have to think about uh, whether we want to admit or not, but there's always like the issue of time. You know, we have to understand that uh, nurses are always very busy and sometimes they're able to help, sometimes they're not. If you look at, you know, physical therapists also, we have to provide care to not only the ICU, but all the hospitals. So we have a large number of patients that we have to see on a daily basis. So, but none of those things should be an excuse because in my opinion, the patient mobility should be you know, a priority in the plan of care. It doesn't matter how sick the patient is. I mean, the patients should be mobilized. It should be on the plan of care on a daily basis, like you said, unless there are exceptions, if the patient has to be prone or if they have an open abdomen or if they have an open chest. In those cases, of course, mobility would not be a priority. And so since we've always struggled with mobilizing patients as a standard, what do you see being some um, concerns as far as the rehabilitation goes 
for our COVID-19 patients now? Well, for the COVID-19 patients, that has been a huge challenge because uh, the problem that is happening is that uh, patients are kind of uh, not all the times receiving the care they need as far as mobilization by physical therapists. And the reason for that is that, uh, as all of us know, uh, there is this incredible need for PPE conservation. So we have to be very careful how you utilize the you know, limited number of PPEs that we have. So for that reason, sometimes we are trying to make sure that uh, we don't go into the room. So we kind of talk to the nurses and ask them um, to kind of help us and do some things with give instructions to the nurses so they can do uh, some exercise with the patients or help them out of bed to avoid using large numbers of PPE. Again, another reason is that uh, we are trying to limit the number of clinicians that go into the room to see those patients because of the potential risk of spreading the virus. Yeah, other problems also is like social isolation. There's no family present. So in the past, we would just ask the family to do these exercises and things like that. Now we don't have to do that. And another, and lastly, the one the other thing that we are seeing is that uh, usually the equipment that we use to mobilize these patients, uh, we are not to have access because we are not able to take those equipment inside the room. Yeah, they're huge obstacles. And so a lot of these patients in this ICU especially, I think things are starting to change now, but throughout this COVID era, thus far we have been promptly intubating people after six liters. And because of our intensive sedation culture that we've clung to, they're still being deeply sedated right after intubation. So these patients are being sedated right after six liters nasal cannula, so even sooner in their course of illness than other kind of pneumonias. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So now they're deeply sedated and mobilized by your, your definition. And so now we're definitely not moving them. You know, we maybe weren't super great at it before, and we're definitely not moving them now. And we're seeing that these patients have really, really sick lungs. A lot of them need pronation at least. And this ends up being a course of weeks. So from your perspective, what you've seen, what happens to the the rest of their bodies after they've been deeply sedated on the ventilator, not moving a muscle for weeks? 
what does that look like? And then what does it take to build that back up and rehabilitate a body like that? Yes, that is a great question. So we have to understand that muscles, if we don't use it, we lose it. And the rate that we lose the muscles is quite fast. It's much, much faster than we are able to regain the muscles. So basically, after weeks of bed rest, after weeks of being critically ill, and, and at this point, we don't even clearly understand how this virus really affect, you know, all of the other, you know, body systems, including muscles and nerves. But these patients will present with significant muscle weakness on all four extremities. They are also going to present with significant deconditioning, which is the inability to tolerate the upright position. So anytime that you sit them on the side of the bed for a few minutes, or you stand them for a few minutes and take a few steps, they're exhausted. And the reason why they're, one of the reasons they're exhausted because their bodies have pretty much lost the ability to function against gravity. And that takes time. Everything is going to take time. So we, I don't think that at this point there's any kind of special physical therapy, occupational therapy, rehabilitation that is going to make these patients get better any faster because there is a cycle where it's going to happen before those patients return to full function. Let me just give you an analogy so you kind of understand a little bit better what I'm talking about. As a physical therapist, I'm going to give an example of a patient who has knee surgery. Let's talk about a complex knee surgery like a, an ACL reconstruction. If you know someone who had an ACL reconstruction, you're probably going to know that uh, uh, the quadriceps muscle, the, the muscles on the affected leg, they atrophy extremely fast with that surgery. The, that leg becomes very weak in comparison to the other one. And um, if you think about how long does it take for you to fully recover the muscles on the leg that had surgery. And for the most part, we are talking about a young, healthy patient who had an ACL reconstruction. This is a patient that is probably does not have a systemic inflammatory response going on. This patient pretty much sleeps well during the night. He has a very good nutritional status. So this is not a sick patient. It's a healthy patient that just had a knee operation, but we are talking about months and months and months for us to be able to really fully recover just a couple of muscles in that limb. Does that make sense what I'm talking about now? So when we are dealing with a patient who has pretty much every single muscle of the body has been affected, we have to be patient and we have to understand that it will take perhaps a couple of months for these patients to get better. And, and what is that process initially? So when someone leaves the ICU after they've been immobilized for weeks, generally they're trached, pegged, still ventilator dependent. When they first roll into an LTAC, in general, what is it like, for example, to dangle them that first time? You said, you mentioned that it's that they fatigue quickly and it's difficult, but how many people does it take to sit them up? 
How well, long? I'm going to be honest with you. I would hope that by the time the patient gets to an LPAC, I mean, they have already been mobilized to a certain degree, you know, prior to that. Okay. So, so I would be surprised if by the time they get to an LPAC, that would be the first time they would be, you know, at least sitting on the side of the bed. But to sit a patient on the side of the bed, I would say that it takes at least two staff members for safety reasons, particularly if they're on the ventilator, because if these patients become, I mean, very weak or hypotensive or something, it's very unlikely that one person would be able to safely return the patient back, you know, to the bed uh, without dislodging any lines or tubes. So usually could be a nurse and a nursing assistant. That would be very likely they would be able, you know, to handle a patient like that. And how long does it take until the patient can engage their muscles themselves, maybe put their hands on the bed and hold themselves up? What have you seen? How long does it take to get for them to get to that point? It could take for a couple of days to a couple of weeks. It all depends, really, because basically what happens when there's a physical therapy consult for this patient, we do a very detailed examination and evaluation of the patient. So we go there and we pretty much do an assessment of every single muscle um, in the patient's body. And uh, we determine what are the muscles that are the weakest and and the functional limitations. So based on this initial assessment and this evaluation that we do, then we come up with a plan of care for those patients and a goal. Okay, so let me give you an example. Let's say that uh, when I sit the patient on the side of the bed, the patient, uh, it takes moderate to maximum assistance for the patient to sit on the side of the bed. If I let go, he's going to just completely fall backwards. Okay, so my goal, perhaps in two weeks, is for the patient to be able to sit with minimal assistance or perhaps unsupported. So basically, as a physical therapist, we work towards these goals. Let's say that the patient, and I'm just giving you random examples so you can kind of uh, understand what I'm talking about. Let's say that the first time I see the patient, the patient is able to stand, but he's unable to take any steps because he's very weak. So perhaps we usually set goals for two weeks. In two weeks, my goal would be that the patient is able to take, you know, five or 10 steps in place, or perhaps be able to, you know, walk five feet. So basically, we would have to really do a completely, you know, assessment of the patient so we could determine what is the best treatment for this patient. And that also would kind of uh, give us an idea how long it's going to take for the patient to recover. For example, if I come to see a patient and the first time and the patient is unable to raise the legs up off the bed and maintain the knee straight, I can guarantee you that it's going to take a couple of weeks, if not months, before this patient is able to stand up and walk again. Because he's going to have to be able to regain, you know, the muscle strength and also functional strength. Does that help? Oh, that helps it a lot. I mean, we on Twitter, I'm seeing a lot of discussions about COVID-19 rehabilitation and these new programs and all these things. And someone made the important point of, this is what's always been happening. This is what is always needed. We're just seeing them in higher concentrations now that we're having so many more people in ARDS come in all at once. I'm also seeing people in New York and these hot spots be panicked because they can't 
their few survivors that they have after being on the ventilator, they don't necessarily have anywhere to send them now. LTACs are full. They're not taking COVID positive patients. We're going to see a lot of obstacles in the rehabilitation world. And it might be kind of a mixed blessing because in reality, in the ICU, we don't see those weeks of rehabilitation that you're talking about. We don't see the whole process. We just know that maybe we got them extubated. We at least got them traked and we send them out to a care facility and then it's not my patient or my problem. So what do you see in the era of COVID and having a much higher influx of these kind of patients with this kind of rehabilitation need coming, moving forward? What is that going to be like for your field, for the ICU specialty and the nurses? What is that going to change with, throughout our ICU culture? It's going to be a challenge for everyone. I mean, these patients, even before COVID, they are a challenge throughout the continuum of care. They are a challenge for nurses. They're a challenge for physicians. They're a challenge for PTs, for OTs, for speech therapists. Just because of the complexity of their problems, they are a challenge. One thing that we have to uh, also be very aware is the fact that when patients are recovering, they do not have a whole lot of cardiopulmonary reserve. So basically, they do not have the strength to do a whole lot of activity. So they may be able to just do a little bit at a time. And that is another reason why it takes so long for those patients you know, to recover. Usually, we have to talk to patients and make sure that they're not discouraged. It's very important that everybody you know, physical therapists, nurses, and doctors, that uh, we don't go in there and just keep asking the patient, are you walking yet? How come you're not walking? Are you just not getting enough therapy? A lot of times what I have seen in my practice, the patients, they feel very bad because they think they're not doing enough. And I'm going to be honest with you, with my experience, those patients, they do want to get better and they're doing everything they can to get better but it is a slow process. So a lot of times we just have to help patients really understand that every little gain that they make, it's going to be a victory and just go from there. But like I said before, it's going to be a huge challenge for everybody. So what has been happening lately since uh, we do not have uh, a lot of elective surgeries and we have uh, actually much less patients in the hospitals. We are using our staff to really provide intensive therapy to these patients in hope to help them return home and not having them go to another level of care. Because uh, as you said before, another level of care, it may not be an option for those patients for a variety of reasons. So we are trying to see and do the best we can, hopefully, be able to send those patients uh, home from the hospital. Oh, that's such an important point too, is combining the resources that we have to, to avoid having to send them to those care facilities. I think, and again, the culture, the practices change so much from hospital to hospital, but sometimes there's an assumption that someone is if they hit a certain level of critical illness, they're going to be sent to a care facility. It's just automatic. I talked to one travel nurse that was from a different part of the country, and he said, yep, anyone two or three days after they're intubated, they're trached, pegged, you just know that they're going to go to an LTAC. 
And it made me so sad because as I've mentioned before, 98% of our survivors walk home. And so it's been a challenge with the PPE, the isolation, the severity of, of ARDS, and then the numbers that they've come in to maintain that standard. But I think it is important to do the preventative care as well. I mean, we can, I think it's important to understand what happens when they are immobilized for weeks so that one, we can prepare our patients, have um, a game plan, be patient with them, all those things. But I also think it should serve to inspire us to change our practices from day one, the moment that they're admitted to the ICU to ask what can we do to prevent that kind of weakness. And so, for example, we just had a 69-year-old with really severe COVID, ARDS, cytokine storm, all of it. He came in, he was on pretty minimal vent settings for the first few days, and he ended up being in the hospital for 30 days. So from his admission to the ICU, he walked on the ventilator in his room, walked to the door, wheeled back, walked to the door, wheeled back. We took stools from the OR. He was stepping on stools. He was using the arm bike and the chair and doing all those things for the first six days. And then that cytokine storm hit and he suddenly could not even tolerate being supine. So we had him prone on lighter sedation. And even still, he was able to do his own push-ups in the bed. He was helping turn himself. But after a few days, delirium got worse and we had to sedate him more. He was paralyzed for two days. So he ended up being prone and doing none of this against resistance for eight days. And then as soon as he could tolerate being supine again, this team was so determined not to see him go to an LTAC that they had him sitting up right away. So he went from not even able to be supine, as soon as he could be supine, they had him dangling. And then standing and then working his way up to walking. And four days later, he was extubated. And by the time he left the ICU, he was walking again. And 10 days later, he was discharged straight home on like two or three liters nasal cannula, still needing a lot of rehabilitation and home physical therapy, but he did go home, straight home and was safe to do so. So this is all happening in a situation in which we're not overloaded. We have staff available, right? We can have this ideal culture, but we all did it with the intent that he be able to resume life. We didn't just say, this is COVID. We have to immobilize, deeply sedate, put everything on hold because this is a different virus. We still stuck to what we knew worked. And what would you say to the ICU community about preventing this kind of weakness and creating these kind of rehab needs? Well, first of all, I just want to let you know that uh, this story, patient story that you just said is absolutely phenomenal. And that says a lot about the entire team working with these patients and the vision that they have. And most important of everything that you said is that everybody had the same goal. And I think that is what I would like that, you know, the ICU community could understand that uh, immobility is a safety issue. It's a safety issue that is not being addressed. So basically, a lot of times we hear, oh, the patients are not being mobilized. We need more PTs in the ICU. We need more PTs in the ICU. I do not necessarily agree with that because there's no point in sending more PTs to the ICU if there's a culture 
like a medical culture between medical and nurse, uh, physicians and nurses that they're still sedating the patients. So the number one thing that needs to be done is to make sure that we allow the patients to be somewhat, I mean, they can be lightly sedated for comfort and all that, but the patients have to be able to at least minimally participate with activities and be able to move their limbs in order for us to achieve the goal that you just said. So basically, a couple of things that I would like the ICU community to really understand. First of all, mobility is everybody's job. There's a lot of places they're just sitting there, they write a PT consult and they're waiting for the PT, you know, to come and move the patient. So early mobility alone does not help patients. The most important component of the mobility is the frequent mobility, not necessarily just the early mobility, because the way I look at it, you can have the best physical therapist in the world and the best patient in the world. We come for the physical therapy session for 30 to 45 minutes, let's say 30 minutes in a day. If the patient doesn't do anything else for 23 and a half hours, it's uh -huh. very unlikely that uh, you're going to have the results that you just said. Another thing that I think it would be incredibly important that we would talk about functional mobility the same way, for example, an example would we talk about medication for safety. When a patient comes to the ICU and every time they go to another setting, like to the floor or to another hospital, there's a medication reconciliation. When patients come home to the hospital, we want to know what kind of medications they were taking home correct? So I don't understand why we do not have a functional mobility reconciliation that when we come, when a patient comes into the hospital or to the ICU, that everybody in the team fully understands the patient's previous level of function. I can tell you that every time in the 30 years that I'm in the ICU, I can safely say that more than 90% of the times when I ask a nurse if the patient could walk before the ICU, stay, they have no idea. If I ask the physician, they have no idea unless they knew the patient prior to the hospital. So very important that when all of us understand the prior level of function, I think we can take much better care of these patients. So basically, Clinicians in ICU are always fearful of this line could be dislodged, the patient could be, you know, extubated. I mean, they, they, those fears, I can tell you, they are, you know, real. And I'm not saying that they should not be concerned about that. But the question that I would ask is that, is there anybody who is fearful or concerned that this patient may never walk again? And I really don't see that. I don't see because, uh, unfortunately, the weakness for patients in intensive care unit have become just so normal that every, everybody's okay with it. Oh, it's okay that he's weak because so he's been here for a long time. In my opinion, it's not okay. So what is it that we could do to really prevent those things? Every single one of the ICU team members, they must anticipate the risk and the consequences of the bed rest for every single patient that they care for. So again, 
this functional mobility reconciliation, I think that would be very, very helpful. Also, patient and family education. I think it's important to teach simple exercises to the patient and expect them to do it. I am not asking, for example, for a nurse to do my job, but if the patient is able to lift the leg, if they walk into the room just to change an IV or something like that, if we had a culture of saying, okay, I'm here, when I'm changing this IV, I would like to see you moving your legs. Just lift your legs three times on each side. I mean, simple things like that we could incorporate when, we're, uh, when the nurses are going to bathe the patient. If the patient is a little bit more awake, ask them, can you turn? I mean, make sure that we are asking the patients, you know, to do those activities. And I also uh, want to say something that is very, very important. We have to give our patients permission to move their arms and legs. I cannot even tell you how many times in my career when I tell my patients, I would like you to do these exercises up and down, lift your leg up and down um, throughout the day, they kind of ask me, are you sure it's okay for me to lift the leg? And I say, well, of course it is. Why is that? Because I, the nurse keeps telling me that if I raise my arm, that they're going to tie my arm down. And I'm afraid that if, they, if I lift my leg, that they're going to tie my leg down. So a lot of times when patients are intubated and sedated, and we tell patients those things, do not lift your arm, don't lift your arm. However, once the patients are extubated, we kind of forget to tell them that uh, they, it's okay for them to move their limbs because uh, sometimes they're scared to do that. They don't know that they can move the legs and the arms. So I think those are the things that would be very important. And like I said, one more time, mobility is everybody's job. For example, physicians, sometimes physicians, underestimate the power they have as educators. Mm. I think it would be amazing when they round and they ask the patient, have you been out of bed? Have you been doing your exercises? Because if it comes from a physician, the patient sometimes taking that uh, much more serious than if I say that as a physical therapist for some reason, you know? So everybody must be included uh, in the patient's plan of care as far as mobility. I kind of think I have a simple solution to this that could be um, used for every single patient in every single ICU throughout the world. The minute that patients are awake and able to understand simple activities, perhaps we should expect that patients at least raise their arms and their legs a hundred times throughout the day. Hmm. Not at once, but if we keep thinking, having the patient to think about those limbs, throughout the day, we can make a huge difference. That's the homework that every single one of my patients always got from me. Every patient that I evaluated for physical therapy, when I get a physical therapy consult, I give them, and not only that, I put a sign in front of the patient that I want them to do 100 leg lifts and 100 arm lifts. And like I said, it's throughout the day. I don't want them to do 100 times at once because I want them to be thinking about those muscles throughout the day. So usually I give them little hints like, okay, when it's, if you're watching TV and there's a commercial break, that should be your reminder that you have to lift your legs up a little bit and maybe your arms. So that's what I think that every team member in ICU should know about helping those patients recover. And that is teaching me so much. I kind of walked into an ICU where the culture is pretty well established already. So I see a lot of those 
those principles, but I, I don't necessarily identify them because I, it's so normal or ingrained. But now that we have people coming and training with us, we have travel nurses, people from other ICUs and other specialties coming, I'm having physical therapy come to me and not know how to respond when a nurse says, well, the patient didn't sleep well last night. Well, we're just going to skip PT today. Or they're a little bit delirious, so we're, gonna, we're just going to hold off today. And the physical therapy comes to me and says, I don't even know how to respond because that's, that's not normal. You know, there's such a culture where usually they come into the, the room and the patient is already sitting in a chair on the ventilator ready to walk. You know, the nurse is just so, that, so comfortable. It's so innate for them to say, good morning, get up in the chair. We're going to be alive today. And then it makes more sense why physical therapy, they bring them patients, these bands, um, and they sit in the rooms and they move the bands and they move their legs with the bands while laying in their bed. But now that you have me thinking about it, that's what they do. They, they teach them, the nurses remind them to do it. And I think it gives the patients a sense of um, autonomy, control. They know that even when they're laying there, especially with COVID, when they're laying there isolated in a room, having no control over them being there, how sick they are, they can do their homework. They can control how strong they stay. They can do what they're asked and know that they're contributing to their recovery. So those are such important points, Chris. That's brilliant. It's so nice to have your insight. And I think your point about the focus of the safety, I mean, Dr. Wes Ely just talked a little bit ago on ZDog MD, which I totally recommend his his interview. I can put the link um, on the Medium website. He said that he was in Korea taking a tour and was discussing with the team about waking a patient up and getting them off sedation. And someone said, well, what if they pull out their tube? And a nurse from across the unit yelled back and said, but what if they never walk again? And he, it was just a profound moment, a profound question that I don't think we've really asked in the ICU until recently. I think you as a physical therapist, you've been asking it for 30 years, but for the rest of the team to have that perspective. And as far as a functional assessment and the culture that I'm immersed in right now, that is innate. Every nurse knows if this patient was in a nursing home beforehand, what they were able to do, were they walking with a walker? One man came in and he hadn't walked in a few weeks to a few months. We didn't even know how long, but the whole team knew that. And they knew that that was going to make it hard for him to get extubated. And they knew that they were not going to let that go on. And he developed the ability to walk while he was in very, very severe pneumonia and mild ARDS. So it's everyone knows where they were at, where they are now, and where they want them to go. Because functionality is, is the goal, not just survival. I'm worried about us, you know, right now we can really count our death rates with the COVID-19. But I think this is an opportunity to bring in survival, functionality, those as long-term goals, even in, in such a difficult situation, because these are going to be vulnerable patients. And as you've explained, they're going to be difficult to rehabilitate unless we incorporate and start instilling this kind of culture and focus from day one and do everything possible in the hard situation to prevent this kind of deconditioning. You are absolutely right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Any last pearls of wisdom for us? Well, I think uh, pretty much I have shared my most important topics, um, my thoughts. And uh, I just would say again, mobility is everybody's job and should be a priority in the plan of care for 
every patient in ICU and in a hospital. Chris, that's going to be your catchphrase from now on. Mobility is everyone's job. I'm taking it. I'm quoting you. I'm using it. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com. <laughs>